Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Since the start of Ukraine's long-awaited counteroffensive several weeks ago, observers have been watching closely for signs of a shift on the battlefield. With Ukrainian President Zelensky's admission earlier this week that progress to reclaim territory from Russian forces has been, quote unquote, slower than expected, questions are beginning to mount about whether this counteroffensive will prove to be the decisive breakthrough that many had hoped to see. The results of the campaign may be particularly important in shaping views and future policy among Ukraine's Western backers, many of whom significantly ramped up their deliveries of military aid in advance of the offensive. Meanwhile, irregular activity such as Ukrainian attacks on Russian territory, as well as incidents such such as the dam collapse, are continuing to unfold beyond the front lines, further complicating the picture. To discuss where things currently stand and what we might expect as the conflict evolves in the coming weeks, we're pleased to have back on the podcast Mike Kaufman and to welcome for the first time, uh, Conrad Muzika. Uh, Thanks to both of you for joining. Thank you very much. Um, Mike is the research, well, I don't know, Mike, what do we give as your affiliation? We'll go, I don't know when your date officially starts, but he has been the research program director in the Russia Studies program at CNA and an adjunct fellow here at CNES, but is joining uh, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Um, And Conrad is the director of the ROCON Consulting uh, Group and an independent defense analyst, and he provides consultancy and advisory services on the Russian and Belarusian armed forces. All right, Mike. um, So we haven't recorded a Brussels sprout since the end of May. Uh, So maybe you can bring us up to speed on what's been playing out since uh, Ukraine's long-awaited offensive began. Sure. So maybe I'll provide a very brief summary. Uh, It's clear in May we saw a series of shaping operations by the Ukrainian military, the uh, beginning of a localized counterattack in and around Bakhmut, the flanks of that city, which I think was meant to be a fixing action against Russian forces, and then the launch of the offensive itself in early June. That seemed to feature two principal axes. One, uh, coming down south from Vyika Novosilka, another one pushing south and southwest from Arikiv. Uh, So far, I think it's fair to say that Ukraine has made some gains in terms of territory, but they've been rather limited. The offensive has gone quite slowly. The Ukrainian president himself has admitted that it's going slower than expected. I think looking at the offensive itself, my personal interpretation is that it appeared as though the Ukrainian military was trying to set up a dilemma for the Russian armed forces by pressing them along several axes, trying to get them to commit reserves maybe to one, then making it clear where Ukrainian force could break through. And I think the Ukrainian military hoped to advance on a fairly broad front, right, um, so that they could then reserve the option for where to breach Russian lines and commit their reserves, right? So far, we've actually not seen that much of Ukraine's combat power in the offensive yet, right? That's fair. I think that's that's fair and worth mentioning. But of what we've seen, it's clear that it's been fairly difficult and costly in terms of uh, the first couple of weeks of combat operations. The offensive gains, I think, are are so far marginal at best, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I don't think that this is where the Ukrainian military hoped to be. But on the other hand, it's actually fairly well within the bounds of expectations of, I think, serious analysts, people who are looking at this. And uh, I'll be curious to hear what Conrad says on that score. I think many of us assumed this was going to be difficult. It would be costly. An offensive against a prepared defense with no air superiority, with a limited amount of enablers, breaching equipment, what have you, without the extensive logistical train that countries like the United States can, can expect to have. And uh, against heavy entrenchments, you know, minefields of, comprised of miles upon miles of anti-tank and anti-personnel mines, uh, fairly well-prepared forward positions from the, the way as best one can tell looking at the first couple of weeks of interactions. And, uh, and so, yeah, it has been hard going, but my view is that this, this offensive was going to play out over the course of weeks and months. Offensives in this war so far typically run around two to three months. They've had periods of 
sort of assault maneuver and they've had extensive periods of attrition and there's a lot we're also not seeing on the sort of on the side of the artillery duels um long-range strikes ukraine leveraging its precision fires engaging in a host of battles with and uh, in terms of battery counter battery fire with russian forces but you can also see that they have a lot of challenges right um there's a very visible deficit of short-range air defense they're quite vulnerable to russian uh attack helicopters you see that there's a real uh, probably deficit in mine clearing equipment and a lot of the kind of more enabling capabilities rather than things that people love to focus on in this town which is leopard tanks and f-16s and all these things and we very quickly discover that leopard tanks are far more survivable but they get mission killed by mines just as uh, readily as almost anything else yeah so with that opener uh maybe maybe turn it over back to you and would love to hear what, what conrad uh has to say on this yeah, Conrad, feel free to add anything. And I guess like maybe just to lay it out, kind of like what does what you've seen over the past three weeks tell you what Ukraine has been trying to accomplish in these early weeks of the offensive? Right. Um, to start with, uh, let me say that it is actually quite uh, noteworthy that, you know, we are a year and a half into this war almost. And it's the third Ukrainian counteroffensive that they've conducted, right? Uh, in the meantime, if we are going to look at uh, the situation since the Russian pullback from uh, from northern parts of Ukraine in April last year, um, Ukraine Russians were actually not able to mount any large scale op operations. Now, if even if, I mean, if we remove Wagner from the equation completely. Right, and their successes in Solodar and Bakhmut, then essentially Russian regular army units actually made no progress since uh, last uh, July when they captured Lysychansk. Uh, and in the meantime, Ukraine managed to uh, liberate a, a large chunk of its land. Right, so I think it's 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 noteworthy that uh, Ukrainians are actually able to mount large scale operations. Um, you know what I'm what I'm seeing now is is also I mean I'm I'm going to agree with Mike obviously that uh, you know what what we are seeing now especially over the past couple of weeks has been quite underwhelming in terms of the progress made. Uh, I think my expectation was that Ukrainians would initially uh, try to soften Russian lines in a more robust way, um, not necessarily focus on limited shaping op operations but would nevertheless deploy a large number of artillery assets to soften Russian defensive lines. Um, because, you know, what, what we've seen was that, <clears throat> let's say in Velkaya, Novoselivka, um, Ukrainians had been fighting in this area for quite a while now. And what happened was they deployed additional brigades all of a sudden, they tilted the balance in their favor, uh, which allowed them to progress about five kilometers into the uh, Russian occupied lands. But since then, uh, not much has changed in this area. I mean, there is no vi visual evidence really that for the past couple of years, a uh, couple of sorry weeks, um, Ukrainians were actually able to to advance. Uh, and I think now they reached a point where they are behind the schedule. I think it, at, at the current stage, it's 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 clear uh, they admitted themselves, uh, and they and they focus a lot on trying to degrade uh, Russian ability to conduct art artillery strikes, um, at least officially, because we've seen a massive increase in the number of Russian artillery assets destroyed. Uh, and let me stress that that this data is provided by the Ukrainian gen general staff. But you know, a part of that is actually confirmed by by uh, visuals. Um, but for instance, yesterday Ukrainians claimed to have destroyed, I think, forty four ar uh, Russian artillery pieces. And the moving average of the daily Russian artillery ro losses now stands at about twenty five, uh, which is which is uh, the third the highest uh, since the war started. Uh, so so there is definitely a focus on trying to degrade. Uh, Russian ability to provide fire support, 
Um, secondly, um, Ukrainians have also focused on uh, striking uh, Russian electronic warfare uh, complexes. Um, you know, Murmansk BN has been targeted, uh, Karushka too uh, has 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 been destroyed. Um, so anything that degrade that will degrade Russian uh, C4. And um, and that will prevent you Russians from influencing Ukrainian decision making, command and control, and uh, and so on. And lastly, I think you know, Ukrainians are trying to to isolate the battlefield uh, somehow. I actually expected that this would happen uh, much earlier, uh, even before the main phase of the counteroffensive started. Uh, namely, they um, they fired on they they probably fired um, storm shadow mi missiles uh, on the bridge in uh, Chonhar. Uh, the bridge is called Gate to Crimea because it, it links the Kherson Oblast to uh, Crimea. Um, but you know, Russian authorities stated that it would take se several days to repair the bridge. So it is not going to have a big impact, I don't think. Or especially, it's not going to take a long a it's it's not going to have a long lasting effect on Russian logistics uh, during this the, this counter of, of offensive. But uh, but nevertheless, it it does seem that it was a Ukrainian attempt to try to isolate the battlefield. Now, in terms of um, just to sum up, in terms of you know, the battles that we are seeing now, it is definitely going to be a more difficult than the the Kherson of offensive, which in its official when which in its initial stages was very costly for the Ukrainians. But the advantage that Ukrainians enjoyed uh, at the beginning was they were really able to isolate uh, the northern grouping of Russian forces north of Dnipro. Right now, currently, Ukrainians do not. Uh, have such a possibility, right? Simply because you know there are just land, uh, there are no bridges to destroy. To to destroy. So yes, we are. So this counteroffensive will uh, likely develop over the course of the following months. Um, attrition rate, pre having low attrition rate is going to be key for I think both sides. Uh, the deployment of Western-made equipment will undoubtedly. Have a positive effect on Ukrainian survivability rates. Uh, that's something that we've already seen. Um, but you know, but as things stand now, um, it's a very very slow progress for Ukrainians. Mike, did I see you wanted to add something? Yeah, sure. So, so I want to pile on to what Conrad said. So first, it's definitely clear from the opening. It uh, looks a lot closer to. Uh, what we saw in Kherson and in Kharkiv, and it's probably going to be quite more difficult than Kherson because the geometry of the battlefield is very different. This time there is not a portion of the Russian forces holding a riverbank with only one bridge and a string of ferries connecting them via ground lines of communications. I agree with Conrad. I think that the preparation for this fight um, seemed a bit surprisingly thin. A lot of the strikes that one might have expected using Storm Shadow, they target command and control, but they didn't go after grounds of communication nearly as much. Uh, and, and to a much lesser extent, Russian logistics, we saw one significant ammo dump. I'm not even sure that's what it really was hit at the railway station a month into Ukraine having storm shadow missiles, right? Which tells us both a bit about Russian adaptation, reorganization of logistics and how much harder it is to target these now. But it's a night and day situation compared to the first month when HIMARS was introduced. So the folks that said, well, Ukraine just needs a longer stick and all these ammo dumps will go up in smoke. The answer is, if that was true, we would have seen a lot more ammunition exploding in the first month of Ukraine having Storm Shadow missiles like we did with HIMARS, if anybody remembers kind of what, what uh, late June through July and August look like. Um, you know, a couple of points, let's be frank. So Russian defense, particularly forward defense, is better than anticipated and it's been harder to get through. I think that's fair. Uh, although, on the other hand, it's also important to say that plans rarely survive first contact with the enemy. So whatever the timetable was or the plan was, we should also be fair in stating that it was very likely it was going to be more difficult than, than folks expected or assumed. Second, Russian morale seems to be holding. The force is not collapsing. And a lot of us wondered much more about the state of the Russian military, especially after their failed winter offensive, right? What would we see? 
How well would they hold ground? And the sort of soft factors or intangibles, which we cannot measure, but can only tell once uh, once we have some indicators. And, and so far, the, the Russian military is not collapsing at all. Um, well, we'll see. Let's say it's still quite early days. Uh, more importantly, they've not pulled in reserves and they've not pulled in units from the Dnieper grouping of forces either, not to a significant extent. So they're able to hold against the Ukraine advance with initial forces deployed. And that's not particularly great news, uh, but worth mentioning. So far, it does look like a good showing for Western equipment. Western equipment uh, is significantly more survivable and substantially increases the survivability of the crew and personnel inside. That's very clear. It uh, allows nighttime uh, operations capability, and Ukraine has been using this uh, to various extents. Um, what it is so, what it is not necessarily uh, a great showing, or at least not so far, uh, for is is the proposition that with a few months of training, you uh, fairly fresh mobilized Ukrainian soldiers. Yes, they can learn and master the equipment, right? But there's a lot more than that to operating as, you know, platoon company or battalion that with a few months, they can engage effectively in combined arms maneuver at, at that uh, level. And as best I can tell, and I don't know this for a fact that this is, this is um, the central challenge they're having, uh, but just to say that it... It's so far not, I think, the best showing for the new brigades, and it's clear that Ukrainian military is attaching battalions from experienced brigades to these units, and more experienced older brigades are actually doing a lot of the fighting along these various axes. So I think the, the jury's still out, and my honest answer is it's too early to tell, but it's clear that probably if there's an issue, the issue's not the equipment, right, but the issue simply... It's only been a couple of months to train these units up. They're they're fairly, I think quite a few of them are fairly green, and they're going up against a pretty well-organized defense with a lot of challenges to overcome. And so that's part of the reason why it looks the way it does. I know, Jim, that you're going to jump in, but let me, let me just end this little part, because I think Conrad gave a really um, helpful list of what Ukraine's objectives have been in these early weeks of the offensive. Mike, can you just talk about um, how Russia is approaching, like, I mean, obviously their, their goal is to hold the line. Um, but it also looks like they may be doing also some of their own attacking. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what it is that you're seeing from the Russian side and what you think their objectives are in these weeks other than to hold territory? Sure. Well, I mean, at the tactical level, they're not just maintaining a positional defense. It's clearly a degree of maneuver defense there in the forward lines in the security zone. And you see that they are conducting short counterattacks to try to prevent Ukrainian forces from consolidating on any ground they take. So these towns have been changing hands several times over, some of them over the last uh, couple of weeks. And that's also quite telling, right? Rather than being able to easily move up, right, take positions, consolidate, move up additional units, Ukraine is forced to fight um, to, for control of some of these towns. I think the main Russian objective is just to uh, exhaust uh, Ukrainian offensive potential. Hope that that this, this summer is uh, the peak of Western military assistance to Ukraine. I don't know if it's necessarily true, but I'm sure Russians are hoping it is, right? Then try to regenerate their own offensive potential in the fall, maybe for the winter, based on, depending on how uh, the fighting this summer goes. I think the Russian military is also trying to conduct localized counterattacks. You've seen them try to pressure Ukrainian forces far up north in Kupiansk by Luhansk. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I'm of the mind the Russian offensive potential is largely spent, uh, especially after what we saw this winter. And that those are at best going to be uh, spoiling attacks and, and efforts to try to distract the Ukrainian military effort. But um, beyond that, I think the Russian military is actually still digging in because they see where Ukraine has been trying to advance, right? Like this, that, the axis of Vika Novosilka. And it's clear they're digging additional trenches and more and more kind of reserve lines and putting down more minefields. And that's one of the challenges with the offensive going slower because it'll become then a, well, it could become an attritional battle, right? That last months, and the gains can end up being rather, well, I hate this word limited, but it is less than folks hoped for. Because as Ukrainian forces advance, unless there's a substantial breakthrough, uh, it, the Russian forces keep digging in further, keep putting down additional minefields. 
keep uh, digging more trenches and, and entrenchments and what have you. And so one of the biggest questions then is on, on this point, what we're not seeing is we can't see the balance of attrition to the force, right? And there's a lot of gradually then suddenly effects that take place on the battlefield. I often say as analysts, we tend to select for what we see, which is territory trading hands, right? Who took what town and has the line moved? But there's but there are very important things that we cannot see, the impact on the force. And so we don't know uh, what the casualties are, what the rate of attrition has been the Ukrainian military and the Russian military from this fighting. And so we're... To, Basically, Ukraine advancing could be not a leading, but also a lagging indicator based on what's happening, uh, based on what's happening to the two forces. Okay, Jim, over to you. Oh, thank you. Um, so back, uh, number one, I agree with what both of you all are saying. And I, I do hope that the efforts to try to tamp down expectations are still going to continue because uh, we're just not going to see uh, on, in, with this offensive, the, the kinds of gains that we saw last summer—that was a one-off thing—and this is this is what uh, uh, this is that pick and shovel uh, work you have to do when you're going up against minefields, particularly no air cover. I mean, this is just a, a tough slog. So I agree with what you guys are saying, but you know, Mike, you talked about it potentially becoming attritional, and well, it is, uh, and and so that brings up to me logistics. Uh, my fear is that they don't have Ukraine doesn't have much of a bench when it comes to replacing battlefield uh, casualties concerning vehicles. Uh, I, I know that they had they lost a bunch of Bradleys uh, and the U.S. rushed more to uh, to replace them, uh, which I was I didn't like to hear because I was hoping we'd have some prepositioned uh, and ready to to move in to, to fill the gap when they start taking losses on the battlefield in terms of armor. So what do you guys think about the the, uh, the logistical bench of Ukraine and how they'll be able to handle uh, taking a lot of casualties, uh, and I'm talking you know, equipment here, uh, in, the, in the weeks to come as they go through that all that um, defensive uh, maze that the Russians have created? What's their logistics look like? And do you have any comment on the, there was an article in the uh, Times, I think, New York Times talking about the poor state of equipment um, that has been delivered to Ukraine by a lot of nations in the West, including the U.S. It sounded like uh, these weren't exactly uh, off the shelf uh, bits of equipment that Ukraine then had to repair. So those two questions, logistics and then the poor state of equipment that the West might be providing. Conrad, you want to kick off? Sure. So, you know, as some of you may know, Mike and I and uh, Rob Lee and Franz Stefan Gedi, you know, we've been to Ukraine twice already and we've talked to some of the guys who are more uh, familiar with uh, Russian, with Ukrainian logistics support, especially when it comes to uh, the Western equipment. And, you know, my, I don't know whether Mike will share my impression, but, you know, when it comes to, for instance, M777s, you know, the bulk of them are actually repaired in, in the house. I mean, in the, in Ukraine. And the U.S. efforts to actually provide uh, repair capability to, to Ukrainians so that the turnaround is as quick as, as possible has actually, in my view, at least been quite in, impressive. And, you know, I, I don't know how the situation looks with Bradley's and other Western equipment, um, but I would say that uh, given the current Ukrainian experiences with servicing Western-made equipment, I would be surprised if the level of leeway that, that was given to Ukrainians to repair this equipment has actually been quite high. And 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 that you know Ukrainians will be able to to make you know, let's say small to medium uh, repairs uh, in Ukraine with uh, Western partners' um, support. And I welcome any Mike's comments on that. Sure. Uh, briefly, I would just say that um, on logistics maintenance, so I think since the last fall, Ukraine has been able to do a lot more in-house, which is great news. Fully agree with Conrad. Uh, in terms of the equipment overall, it's been provided. Well, here's the truth. You know, a lot of these things were probably pulled out of warehouses. Some maintenance have been done on them. I suspect that 
well, some percentage of the equipment when it arrived was not good to go. And what, what many don't appreciate is that a lot of this equipment will break down a week or two into the operation without even necessarily having, having contact with the enemy. That's just the nature of things. Uh, and it's hard to maintain. I mean, you have to pray for Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian maintenance and logisticians because they inherited a diverse park of infantry fighting vehicles, APCs, different types of tanks, right? So it's, uh, you know, I often call it a bit of a zoo. Um, you know, beyond that, uh, I, I think it is going to be, uh, well, there's a false dichotomy between attrition and maneuver, right? Uh, there's, there's always attrition on the battlefield. The issue is more that uh, we're we're going to we've gone from a phase of uh, sort of Ukrainian attempts at, at maneuver warfare and breakthrough to one where they're going to probably have to substantially try to degrade the Russian military with fires, with long range precision strike and what have you in order to then maybe set the conditions to, to try again and, and push further. OK. Um, are they able to sustain that? It's clear the United States and the other countries have given Ukraine some substantial park of artillery ammunition and precision guided munitions for this offensive operation, but I doubt they are on an infinite timeline, right? So everything has trade-offs, and I think Ukrainian military will face dilemmas just as the Russian military will. Can you, um, this, I, so some of this is, will be a little bit repetitious, but just to kind of package it all together. I mean, you've talked about, so some limited gains, but one of you has made the point that it's come with significant losses. And Conrad, I know kind of in some of your updates that you provide, you were at least looking at what Ukraine lost in maybe the opening days. And I don't know if any of those losses have continued. Like as Jim mentioned, the some of the Bradleys have been destroyed. I think Conrad, you reported on at least one of the mine clearing machines was wiped out. Um, what are we looking at in terms of the losses that Ukraine has sustained uh, so far? Right. So uh, when it comes to Bradley's, uh, on the first couple of days, Ukrainians lost, uh, and I'm talking about vehicles that were destroyed or damaged and abandoned. Uh, Ukrainians lost 17 or 18 vehicles, right? So that constituted about, I think, 15% of Bradley vehicles that were delivered to, to Ukraine or were promised um, to be delivered. So I think, you know, 15% 15, 15 loss during the first couple of, of days, um, that's a, a, a substantial loss, you know, regardless how we look at it. The good news is, um, and that's something that stands in stark contrast to what Russians did. So following you know, the failure to breach uh, Russian lines, Ukrainians pulled, pulled back and they didn't try to conduct uh, offensive operations in the area where they sustained uh, the heaviest losses. Uh, you know, to compare, you know, we've all seen Russian attacks near Volodar, uh, multiple senseless day-by-day -day attacks where essentially the entire Russian units were wiped out by ATGM crews, minefields, tanks, and and so on. So so I think you know we also have to give it to Ukrainians that that, that they were not stubborn in their attacks. They see what worked, they see what didn't work, and they chose not to pursue uh the attacks which were likely to deliver uh, only only high only high losses. Uh, on the battlefield. Um, another, I think, substantial loss was uh, the loss of uh, three Leopard 2R mine-clearing vehicles, which constituted 50% loss of the Leopard 2R uh, fleet. Um, so that, so yeah, so that was also a big loss. But but again, it was the the part of the same attack as when the Bradleys were lost. Uh, they didn't attempt to re repeat it, which is good. Yeah, that's really helpful. And then, Mike, you made the point, too, that like not all of or even not that much of Ukraine's combat power has been deployed. So why not? And once they do deploy the, the, the additional forces, should we expect that gains are forthcoming? Like, I mean, why haven't they been deployed yet? And what should we expect once they are? Sure. Well, some of what people might consider to be heavy units were committed early on, like 47th Brigade along the the internet access. Uh, I, the reason I haven't been deployed, at least from my point of view, is straightforward. The 
job of the initial assault was to get to the Russian main line and to put Ukrainian forces in a position where they could breach it and then commit reserves, okay? Um, across the axes that we can see, Ukrainian forces have not made it to the main Russian line of defense. And while in areas they breached the initial line of defense or the forward defenses, uh, those breaches, at least from my point of view, don't seem sufficient or don't constitute uh, what are likely Ukrainian requirements. And so much of the force and the reserves are sitting on the sidelines because there is no main breach to exploit. And if they are committed, they are committed early on at this point, you know, everything faces trade-offs, strategies fundamentally about choices, then the problem could be that if they attain the breach with the forces they were holding in reserve, then they will not have much left in the tank to actually exploit it, and they will not have momentum, right? So uh, I think that's why we've seen a substantial percentage of Ukrainian combat power still sitting on the sidelines as they're trying to create the conditions and also trying to reassess, you know, based on the first week or two of fighting, what what to do next. That's my per that's my personal interpretation of it. Um, so the good news on that end is that Ukraine still has not lost a significant percentage of the forces arrayed for this offensive. Right. That being said, right now they don't seem to be at least where they probably would have wished to be at this point. That's very clear as well. I don't think anybody's looking at this and saying that the offensive is going uh, necessarily to plan, but it's still, to me, well within the realm of expectations, and they have they have options, right? And so that's kind of that's sort of that's sort of my bottom line. Yeah, I know that you both hate to when I ask you to forecast things, but give me from Ukraine's perspective, like a, a best case and a worst case scenario over the next two months. A, a realistic best case and worst case scenario. Uh, yeah, it's a, I can give you a one week, a, a one week prediction. Uh, no, but within, you know, a couple of months, I think, you know, I mean, it's, on the one hand, it's kind of it's very difficult to extrapolate what we've seen so far, uh, and yeah, so what we've seen so far and extrapolate it over the next couple of months. But at the same time, uh, the the progress has been so so slow that it's 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 sort of it's hard to imagine now what would need to happen um, for Ukrainians now to achieve a a significant breakthrough, unless more forces are committed to the battle so i think you know if if ukrainians will reach uh the first or will reach the main russian defensive lines let's say north of tokmak in the in the orikiv uh axis then i think you know that will be that's that, that's probably achievable um but at the same time as i said you know, the past two weeks, you know, have shown that Russians, you know, put up a very stiff resistance. Uh, Ukrainians are unable to push uh, through the initial defensive lines. We are not even talking about the main defensive lines. And unless there is some sort of change within uh, how Ukrainians are conducting the, this offensive, whether this is by, you know, significantly increasing artillery strikes, you know, more let's quote unquote the battle shaping operations trying to isolate the battlefield somehow and uh, then you know it's 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 going to be still very difficult to to achieve uh this objective within the couple of months mike i know we've had or have been a part of previous conversations with you where you've kind of laid out some criteria of ukrainian success and i think a couple of the points that you've made is it kind of has to be a categorically different amount of territory that Ukraine is able to take, not like just like these slow incremental gains, but something substantively different that you kind of you'll know it when you see it. And as part of that, then they're going to have to demonstrate that they're putting Western equipment and training to good use. And sitting now, do you is do you think that is achievable and attainable at this point? Sure. So first, the answer is yes. As I've said before, this offensive will take weeks and months to play out. All right. They are still offensive, took at least two and a half months. 
um, the Valpor Kharkiv and then Liman was fairly fast moving and fast paced, quite different from this, but that took quite a few weeks too. Most offensives we've seen in this war have taken two or three months to shake out. Now, I think the truth is that once we see Ukraine actually commit a substantial amount of reserves, we will be able to tell within a few days which way it is going to go. Right now, it is simply too early to tell. Regarding the conditions for success, which we discussed before, right? I mean, my sense of it was uh, maybe three principal conditions. Right? The first is uh, Ukrainian forces have to liberate some substantial tranche of territory with a recognizable objective. That could be Mediatopol, that could be Berdyansk, that could be Mariupol. It doesn't have to be the same amount of territory they liberated during the Kherson or Kharkiv offensive. Um, I don't think there's some sort of arbitrary amount of square kilometers that any analyst or, or person should place on this. Uh, but but clearly, but clearly it has to be more than, you know, the villages of Blachadatna and Makarovka, okay? All right. Second is that the Ukrainian military has to show that this stage of the war, they can break through the Russian lines and beat the Russian military decisively. And the Russian forces have to appear to have been beaten. Right. And we will know it when we see it. Right. If you're if you're sort of asking, uh, how can we tell? Well, we can tell that so far this hasn't been it. All right. Third, they have to illustrate successful proof of concept that with Western equipment, Western training, provision of Western munitions, they're able to conduct a more efficient form of warfare than what we've seen previously. Hence, the extensive surge effort to train and equip nine brigades. Right, and equip entire brigades with Western kit, as opposed to just sort of giving Ukraine this kit and having them spread it out um, to get a sense of, okay, what is the order of the possible at this stage of the war, given Ukrainian force quality, force availability, and prepared Russian defenses. Right? And so to me, that question is still very much unanswered. Yes, we, we've seen results from the early days and, this, and they're very mixed. That's the honest answer. Okay? But it's two, three weeks in. Um, as an analogy, like, and I'm, I'm, as most folks know, I'm not rosy-eyed. I'm not known for my tremendous optimism. I'm known for best cautious optimism because I'm a pretty conservative analyst. But what I also remember is that um, if if you try to rate the Kherson offensive three weeks in, you would have probably called it a failure. Just being frank, this is clearly not Kherson, but um, but if you just look back, and history is always an imperfect guide, but only but only uh, back as far as last year, you can see they have to be a bit cautious in, in pronouncements and projections. And, and Conrad, I think, is in the exact same boat with me. It's difficult to see things even a week or two out in terms of combat operations, and things can change rather quickly. So we're just sort of patiently observing. And all the data and evidence we have is several days behind the fighting, right? It lags the fighting. So we, we also have to be cognizant of the fact that there's things we don't see, and it takes us time to catch up to the visual evidence um, and and, uh, and and shape our to shape our perceptions of how the the battles. Jim, do you, I have a kind of tangential question? So I don't know if you have anything still more directly on this that you want to throw in. Um, I just have a question on the on aviation. Uh, I'm wondering if Russia is now using their aviation much more uh, than in, than they have in the past uh, because they they need it in terms of their defense. And is are the Ukraine uh, forces able to use their man pads to keep them at bay, or are they now kind of at the mercy of of Russian aviation? And the second part to that is if they had F-16s now today, or or you know modern fourth. Uh, generation aircraft, uh, you know, from from some ally, would that make much of a difference or not? Um, so, so that's so that's my question. There is, uh, are we? Oops, uh, um, are we going to find ourselves? Uh, uh, I'm going to have. I'm just, sorry, I just missed my exit. <laughs> um, I'm on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Uh, so, I'm, so, Jim, it's so, great we have you longer now. <laughs> yeah, really. I know. Now I got. As you know, the Pennsylvania Turnpike like sucks when you miss an exit but uh, anyway that's just that's just my question if you can you can edit the rest of it out but i gotta find my way back on the fucking turnpike anyway <laughs> so so it's aviation yeah um i mean i'll briefly take it so 
First, uh, Ukraine has a critical shortage of short-range air defense systems, particularly all-weather nighttime capable systems. Part of the challenge is not only that it's much easier to provide air defense when you're defending as opposed to attacking, but they are attacking with a number of formations on a fairly broad front. The Russian Aerospace Forces clearly knows and can see that Ukraine has a deficit of short-range air defense and it's hard to move it up with uh, the rest of the uh, armored, uh, so with the rest of the maneuver formations that they have, and and you lose it in in trying to to advance with it. So Russian uh, rotary aviation has uh, been a real problem since the outset of this offensive, taking out Ukrainian vehicles at long range with uh, anti tank guided missiles. Second part of your question: What if Ukraine had F-16s? Well, you can't. Okay. You can't answer it abstractly because the question is then how many F-16s, of what type, with what capability? No, that's right. That's there's right. a lot of details and nuances. F-16s are not F-16s. It's you know, there's there's a lot. It's like saying, well, yep. if you had a car, what would the performance be? And my first question yep. is, what kind of car? And yep. um, you know, so with that in mind, if they have F-16s, would it make a substantial difference? I hate to say it, I actually am not. I'm pretty skeptical on that score. I think yep. that a lot of the problems they're facing. Um, from minefields to FPV drones to artillery to uh, fairly low-flying rotary aviation at night, uh, probably the answer is no, and not that much. Okay, not yeah. this, not the stage. And the and now, now the people what folks often ask is not that question. They ask if Ukraine had air superiority, would it make a difference? Of course, it would make a huge difference, but that's not a yeah. question. They had F-16s because. There's a big magical thing that you're imagining was going to happen between Ukraine getting F-16s and getting air superiority. I'm going to tell you that uh, A is uh, very unlikely to lead to B, given the structure of Russian ground-based integrated air defense and advantages in air power. And you just right. can easily get there from having some uh, from having this uh, one capability. Right. I know. I agree. Conrad, That's anything you. you want to add? No, I mean, I I just wanted to say that that it's not the question about F-16s. It's about the, a provision of uh, force, a aviation force that is capable enough and large enough uh, to achieve to 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 allow Ukrainians to achieve air superiority over the battlefield. Right. So it's a I think it's a much more complex problem. Uh, especially a political one, uh, not necessarily a military one at the current stage. Uh, but yes, you know, um, yeah, as Mike said, a critical shortage of short-range air defenses for on the Ukrainian side. That's something that uh, obviously Russians have, have used. We've seen multiple videos of Russian attack helicopters uh, attacking uh, Ukrainian lines from ten right. plus. Um, and essentially, you know, without having short range air defenses near the front line or having um, combat aircraft on persistent air patrolling, uh, also near the front line um, or with a long range strike cap capability, then, then essentially, you know, at certain ranges, uh, Russians uh, can do what they want. Um, but at the same time, you know, we we have to recognize that uh, for the past you know couple of weeks, uh, Russians, according to the Ukrainian sources, have lost I think seven or eight K-52s. Um, oh, good. Yeah. So, you know that. Yeah. So they so Ukrainians also you know have achieved some successes in trying to degrade uh, Russian hel helicopter fleet. Lead, uh, but the but that's not going to have a strategic impact, right? Yeah. Okay, I have a slightly tangential question, which is on like the nuclear side of things. Like, we, you saw this real uptick in kind of Russian public debates over nuclear use in the last week, really. And I wonder if you either of you have any thoughts on on why that is. I think I'm gonna leave it to Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Conrad bravely bow, bow out on that. Conrad, one. <laughs> I'll come back to you on the nukes to Belarus in a second. So you, so you're not totally off the hook, but yeah, Conrad, discretion is the better part of valor. Um, so, 
First answer is I don't know. It clearly got uh, started by Karaganov's very provocative article. The thing is, from my point of view, and I know quite a few of the people involved in this conversation, is that this is an interesting debate amongst uh, those in the Russian foreign policy community and those who deal with arms control and to some extent nuclear policy issues. That said, none of those people are actually relevant to decision making on these issues in Russia. I mean, at all. Okay. They're not in the nuclear strategy community. They're not in the Russian general staff. They're actually not that well connected to uh, within the Russian national security establishment. So I would be careful in reading these as reflections of anything. No offense, but who cares what Sergei Karaganov or Dmitry Tran think at this point? It's a debate amongst people that's playing out publicly. Um, there's been no change of an so no evidence of change in Russian thinking on nuclear use amongst people who matter in Russian force posture, right? And uh, in in terms of and anything in terms of doctrinal approaches that, that we can see, and and I've worked extensively on these issues over the years. Uh, Karaganov in general, I see as a kind of much more relevant provocateur at this stage. And so it is an interesting debate that's playing out in public, but from my point of view, to no meaningful end. And I hope it doesn't uh, stimulate a new wave of discussions here in the West like we had last fall, because last fall there was a really interesting debate on nuclear use and threat of Russian nuclear escalation and uh, and I learned a, a great deal about uh, nuclear weapons during that discussion that I don't think is true, but it was quite interesting to read. Yeah, no, I think that's a, it's really helpful context. But I think the thing that I worry about a little bit over time is, I mean, there is like some elite signaling, right? And so like the public does take cues from elite comments. And so thinking over time about what this does to kind of Russian public attitudes about the permissibility of nuclear use is something that I think, I mean, to your point, it's not going to have an impact in the near term, but over the longer term, I wonder about the longer term impacts. But Conrad, that then I guess maybe is coming up to a final question as, you know, I think, I think Lukashenko has announced that the nuclear weapons arrived in Belarus, or is that not the case? Can you just give us an update on where we are? And I think then the really important question on whether or not that change in posture has any um, significance or implications from NATO's perspective? So I think both Lukashenko and Putin stated that nuclear weapons had already been de had already been deployed to, Bel to Belarus. This information has not been independently verified. We've seen no evidence, no, no reports that this has happened. Uh, so to be honest, I'm quite skeptical. But, you know, at the same time, Lukashenko stated that they will make a formal announcement announcement about the end of the delivery once it happens, you know, probably early July. Um, you know, you know, I I consider the deployment of uh, nuclear weapons to Belarus as a you know form of signaling, uh, you know, of Russia to the West, especially now that we are coming, that we are so close to the NATO summit in in Venice. Uh, you know, you know, probably Russia is trying to to uh, you know force. Uh, the West into some sort of negotiations or increased pressure on the West, uh, you know, maybe prevented uh, from supporting Ukraine with more arms and and so on. Um, but when it comes to the posture of the Belarusian armed forces, I don't think that this is this is not this level of of conversation because you know uh, nuclear weapons are are going to have a strategic inf imp impact. Uh, but I am predominantly, I'm, I would be personally more concerned about the exercise tempo of the Belarusian armed forces and the changes that have occurred within the Belarusian armed forces since mid last year, you know, efforts to improve the mobilization system, uh, efforts to create uh, people's, uh, people's militia, efforts to improve territorial defense forces. Uh, last month, for the first time ever, they conducted uh, brigade-level exercise with wartime manning levels. So this this has never happened. Uh, they've tested the entire mobiliz mobilizational system of the state. Um, so, you know, from my point of view, um, these are more concerning events than you know this possible deployment of nuclear we weapons. Uh, 
as as you know, I rely quite heavily when it comes to uh, what I rely quite heavily on satellite Im imagery when it comes to tracking developments in Belarus. And so far, we've seen you know no sites that are being prepared uh, to host such weapons, which doesn't mean that it's not ha not not happening, obviously. Um, but we will definitely know once they arrive to Belarus. Perfect. All right. Well, on that unhappy note, um, I think we'll call it there. Um, apparently, we've lost Jim somewhere driving around on the back roads of Pennsylvania. Mike, did you want to add something? Uh, no, not not regarding Jim. Uh, I hope I hope we do see him again. Pennsylvania is a big state, uh, and uh, as a New Englander, I wish him the best of luck down there. But uh, no, um, no, I just wanted to say uh, regarding your opening because you mentioned uh, regarding kind of my professional plans and transition, which is that I I am joining uh, Carnegie Endowments, the Russia Eurasia program in Washington D.C. as a senior fellow. Uh, after having spent eight years at CNA, I had a wonderful experience at CNA. I got to uh, work on building uh, and running a Russia team there. I will still keep a hat of CNA as a principal research scientist part-time and uh, will still be uh, to an extent a part of the team there. But I'm very much looking forward to my new adventure, to working with colleagues new and old. I worked with some of the folks at Carnegie Endowment back at National Defense University and, and sort of uh, other other uh, prior periods of my in my uh, career and uh, contributing to the field. So that's it. That's the that's the whole story. Well, we're excited for you as well, and obviously um, excited to continue collaboration from where whatever seat you're sitting in. So we wish you the best at Carnegie, also Mike. Um, but on to bring this to a close. Thank you and Conrad. Thanks to you for joining us, and I am sure we will check in. Uh, in the next couple of weeks or months just to, to take stock of where things are. So thanks to both of you for everything that you do to help keeping us all informed on what's happening. Um, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.